So the topic is taking ethical disagreement seriously. And I start by pointing out that um, influential views about ethical disagreement are actually shaped by two interconnected tendencies. And it's important for me to say to you that this is how my research actually on these topics began with the assumption that you need these two tendencies in mind at all points. Modern moral skepticism on one hand is comparing ethics unfavorably with science. And I will actually start the first few minutes of the talk just re rehearsing a little bit about that. But then as we all know, there's this historically deep-rooted assumption that cultural diversity virtually always produces or generates ethical relativism in some kind of robust sense. And so those two things are always at work together in the background of this. So I said I would start briefly with the discussion of moral skepticism. Um, and they are united, even if the language they use to express this view differs, they're united in asserting what the great um, philosopher of mathematics and logic and language, uh, William Van Orm, Willard Van Orman Quine, sorry, what he called um, the methodological infirmity of ethics. And here's an important quote from Professor Quine. Disagreement on moral matters can arise at home and even within oneself. And when it does, one regrets the methodological infirmity of ethics as compared with science. Whereas we can test our prediction against the independent course of observable nature, we can judge the morality of an act, Quine says, only by our moral standards themselves. Now this quote's actually part of a wonderful, very short little paper that Quine uh, wrote when he was asked to reflect on the connection between his writing about in the philosophy of science and philosophy of math uh, and what people who do ethics and value theory think. And this was his reply. It was not actually terribly welcome in some circles, as you can guess. Now, what is going on in that view that Quine is stating really is a claim about how disagreement works in the two different domains. So the first claim is that scientific, sorry, serious disagreements about scientific claims are in principle rationally resolvable. There's some method, in other words, um, by reference to which we can come to, uh, he thinks, a genuine resolution on a, a scientific disagreement. On the other side, serious disagreements about ethical claims on this view are in principle rationally irresolvable. And if you were to read, say, the first 80 years of analytic philosophy in the English-speaking world, um, not just in the US, England, you know, Australia, America, anywhere else that kind of read analytic philosophy in English, they would have all accepted almost entirely some version of this, at least the ones who talked about the comparison between science and ethics. And so I've approached this claim that they're making from the very beginning with some serious questions. I have many more than this, but three are going to be framing the things I say in these remarks today. And I, I'm not going to say now I'm answering question one, but you'll, you'll know when I, when I come to an answer. So from what vantage point can we definitively declare ethical disagreement rationally irresolvable? It's a very definite statement they're making, but how do we know where one needs to stand in order to be able to say that? Does unresolved, in other words, mean the same thing as irresolvable. Secondly, we can ask whether such a declaration just assumes 
that argument in science is normative for ethics. And it's very important to know that from the beginning, um, philosophers like Aristotle would never make this assumption. You know, Aristotle says, ask only the, con- the standards of argument and inquiry that are appropriate to the domain. And he would have thought that maybe the Quinean view and all those like it is failing to appreciate that important, um, that important stance. Finally, do critics of disagreement in ethics actually understand how complex disagreement in and about science can really be? And this is the, I won't get back to this question until the very end, but I think you'll see immediately what I think the answer to this question, I'm gonna say on this one, no, they don't. So a few more observations about the sort of science comparison side of the uh, tendencies. And that I think, Actually, not just to this, the kind of scientific um, challenge, the modern moral skepticism, we can say at least three things to try and push back against the skepticism they defend. The first is that some ethical disagreements seem to be genuinely resolved by an agreement to disagree. Stanley Cavell, the great um, philosopher of aesthetics and philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, wrote this giant tome, The Claim of Reason. It took him about 20 years. I think it was originally his PhD dissertation. Took him years to finish it. But he makes, one of the arguments he makes in that book is that, look, sometimes in ethics, we don't have to agree on a single judgment. We simply have to say, now we agree to disagree. And sometimes we can live comfortably with such an arrangement. This suggests if Cavell and Moody Adams are right, that the purpose of moral argument isn't always to converge on a single judgment. That might be true in science, but sometimes in ethics, we're just trying to better understand a view that we don't share. And my argument, I think, I believe this comes from ordinary common sense, but you folks can tell me later if you think that I've overstated the case. Sometimes discussing grounds for ethical disagreement that isn't quote unquote resolved can actually result in a strengthening of respect for and a rational cooperation with those with whom we disagree. Once we know that they have grounds for their views, this may go to some of Nathaniel's questions starting out. Once we grant that they might have good grounds, even if we don't accept them and make the same uh, conclusions uh, they think issue from them, just understanding that they have an argument and that it's meant to appeal to people outside their own minds um, and their own cultures, this can actually be a source of really great respect and a possibility of cooperation. And then I make one final observation before I get to talking about the diversity, the cultural diversity side of this argument. And that's that we can always also ask whether what rational argument really requires. There's some people who genuinely believe that an argument isn't genuinely fully rational unless no rational human being could possibly refuse to accept it. And I'm not going to deny, I think there may be a view like this in Plato. I'm not entirely sure that I, I, but I do. I certainly, I think the the Platonic Socrates might've believed this. Um, And interestingly, the, um, the idea of a coercive conception, that's actually my phrase, but it's a way of capturing an idea that the philosopher Robert Nozick um, articulates in the preface to his fun book, Philosophical Explanations. 
he describes what he calls a knockdown argument, kind of the um, verbal equivalent of a knockout punch in a boxing match, where if you get this kind of argument right, your opponent should not be able to avoid agreeing with you. You basically beat down all objections. I don't think, however, that that's what rational argument always requires, even if it sometimes does require and sometimes maybe can achieve it. Secondly, I assume we, we can ask whether convergence on a shared judgment or a theory is the only solution to serious disagreement. The great 20th century um, philosopher, moral philosopher, philosopher of mind, et cetera, Bernard Williams, discusses the concept of convergence as an ideal accessible in science, but he thinks not in ethics, in ethics and the limits of philosophy. So I think to me, the second greatest book of moral philosophy of the 20th century, for me, actually only behind Rawls's theory of justice, but he doesn't come up with his own theory. He's mostly good, very good at attacking other people's. I happen to think, however, that he misunderstands the differences and the disanalogies between argument in ethics and argument in science. I actually think to the detriment of both domains. I can say more about that if you wish in the... Reflection on the implication of cultural diversity was actually the original source of ethical relativism. You heard from Nathaniel that people like Protagoras um, you know, Plato worried about the sophists, Pythagoras and Gorgias were both um, uh, ancient uh, defenders of ethical relativism. Um, Herodotus in the histories talks about the idea that custom is king. But it isn't really until the 16th century that the kind of early modern understandings of cultural diversity start to take hold. And that's with the work of um, Michel de Montaigne in his essays, particularly the essay of cannibals, each man calls barbarism whatever is not his own practice, for indeed it seems we have no other test of truth and reason than the example and pattern of the opinions and custom of the country we live in. And that no other test of truth and reason is a critical, critical part there. So there are 20th century anthropologists, I'll put all of them up for now, um, who have claimed to actually have proven relativism. Some of you might know Sumner's book, Folkways. It used to be read a lot in uh, introductory ethics classes. There's an overrepresentation of Columbia anthropology on this list. Franz Boas, the great anthropologist and his uh, student, Benedict. Also British social anthropologists here, uh, Evans Pritchard. And then um, the American cultural anthropologist, Melville Herskovitz, whose work I spend the largest amount of time in the section of the book you read for today, uh, but also in today's talk, talking about. Now, before I talk directly about Herskovitz, I'm just gonna present three slides that describe the three different kinds of claims people might be making in this area of um, talking about uh, ethical relativism linked with culture. The first type is an empirical claim or allegedly empirical, which I labeled descriptive cultural relativism. This is really the kind of core of chapter one that you read. This thesis says moral standards or moral codes originate in cultures and differences in the moral practices of diverse societies will always generate fundamental or ultimate moral disputes. And as I said, it's offered as an empirical claim an allegedly simple observation of what's obviously true. 
but can we really be confident that it is obvious? Um, what if rationally resolving ethical disputes doesn't have to work the way this works in science? This might just completely upend and maybe undermine the arguments that people offer here. We'll consider some of those very briefly in a moment. The second of the three types is meta-ethical relativism. This is actually a claim about the nature of language or the nature of our beliefs or the nature um, of our uh, practices for justifying ethical claims. It can take two forms, a negative claim, and I'll show in a minute the different varieties, or an affirmative claim. Um, and I offer three varieties. You'll, many of you will have heard some version of one or possibly more of these. So it might be said no moral principles can be shown to apply to everyone. There's a lot of no and not on this side. There's no rational way to adjudicate between the conflicting claims of different cultures or persons. And in the very simplest language, there's no single true morality. Now, on the other side, there are three sort of equivalent um, or three analogous but affirmative claims. The first is that at least some moral judgments um, are true only relative to the practice of some culture or society. The second one is some moral judgments are justified only relative to the practices of a culture. And the third one, some moral judgments are valid only relative to the practices of some cultures or society. And I should note here that when people use the word valid here, a lot of logicians are not exactly sure what they mean by it. Um, they mean something like they hold true or they, um, they in some way oblige us to act on them. But the word valid gives it a kind of um, official sound that it doesn't actually necessarily deserve. And then thirdly is actually a moral claim, normative ethical relativism, a contentful moral standard. And it comes in two versions. They're both quite familiar. The first version, it says the following, all practices and ways of life are morally equivalent and merit toleration is equally valid or acceptable. But I'll, I'll be asking whether treating all ways of life as equally valid is really compatible with genuine respect, either for cultures or for the people affected by them, perhaps especially the people affected. And then the familiar second version, whether or not all practices and ways of life are morally equivalent. We must withhold judgment. So this one is a little bit less sort of confident in the way it talks about um, this, what, uh, what we're obliged to do in regard to other cultures. So this leads some people worry to a kind of dangerous moral isolationism of cutting ourselves off from other cultures and judgments we might make about them because we claim the right thing to do is withhold judgment. Now, I'm going to show that Herskovitz defends a version of each of those three claims. Not every relativist does, and certainly not every cultural relativist or anthropologist, but he was quite distinctive in this regard. He begins with a claim, before he even gets to the empirical descriptive thesis, he begins with a claim about enculturation. And he says that enculturation is an all-pervasive, largely unconscious, generally inescapable process of conditioning by which one learns a culture. And you might think there's nothing really problematic about that, but then he goes on to claim, sorry, that relativism is the inevitable consequence of taking enculturative conditioning seriously, taking the force of enculturative 
condition and shaping thought and behavior seriously. But again, I have questions. And you'll see when I get to about slide 20, so maybe seven slides from here, that you can ask questions right off the bat. Could enculturation really be all pervasive? I'm going to ask it as a question about the circumstances under which cultures can survive. This may be that this would not be a circumstance under which a culture could survive. And what's the evidence that it's an inescapable force? It might be that everybody in a culture has generally similar understandings of what morality is, but that they're capable of questioning them for um, any manner of reasons um, in ways that show that the culture doesn't govern everything they think and believe and, and every action they undertake. So I promised that Herskovitz then defends all three uh, kinds of relativism. So here's what he says about descriptive cultural relativism. Actually, I'll put both quotes up. No, no, I think it, maybe it is easier this way. All peoples form judgments, he says, about ways of life different from their own. Moral judgments have been drawn regarding the ethical principles that guide the behavior and mold the value systems of different peoples. And then he says, it's become increasingly evident, however, that evaluations of this kind stand or fall with the acceptance of the premises from which they derive. Many of the criteria on which judgment is based are in conflict. So conclusions drawn, one definition of what's desirable will not agree with those based on another formulation. And he actually says this in the um, essay, uh, you saw it there in the essay on uh, relativism and cultural values from 1971, 72, sorry. So relying on the descriptive thesis, he then defends meta-ethical relativism. And you'll, well, I'm gonna to come to this in a moment. There's some philosophers who've tried to say you can defend meta-ethical relativism without relying on the descriptive thesis. The philosopher Gilbert Harmon at Princeton is one of them. I have a long argument in the book that you read for today. I won't discuss it, which shows that it can't be done. And in fact, he doesn't do it. And I don't think anybody can ultimately defend this view except on, if, if it's meta-ethical, Cult relativism in the genuine sense, it depends upon the descriptive thesis. Here's what Herskovitz says. The principle of cultural relativism briefly stated is as follows. Judgments are based on experience and experience is interpreted um, by each individual in terms of his own enculturation. And here's the core of the meta-ethical view. Those who hold for the existence of fixed values will find materials in other societies that necessitate a reinvestigation of their assumptions. And he pretends that he wants to ask a question, but you know he thinks that the answer, he knows what the answer is. Are there absolute moral standards? Moral standards, if, or are moral standards effective only as far as they agree with the orientations of a given people at a given period in their history? And it's obvious that he thinks that it's the only as far as they agree with uh, the people's ethical codes or the standards of, of a given culture or day. And then finally, here is his defense of normative ethical relativism. Cultural relativism, he says, is a philosophy that recognizes the values set up by every society to guide its own life and that understands their worth to those who live by them, though they may differ from their own the relativistic point of view brings into relief 
the validity of every set of norms for the people who have them and the values these represent. So basically, this is in essence, this view taken together, the three varieties of relativism that he's defending, is a way he says of saying that he's, it's an approach to the nature and role of values in culture. Now, he thinks that he's given you a scientific, inductive attack on the age-old problem about the nature of moral values. And it's interesting that for a while, many of the, the sort of scientific types who were in the minds of someone like W.B. O'Quine, they actually were not terribly confident that anthropology really was a science. So I find it so interesting that the scientifically based moral skeptics have now or eventually became confident that this was a, a kind of ally, this view that they didn't always think was genuine science was an ally. So Herskovitz presents rather his three-pronged relativism, descriptive, meta-ethical, and normative, as the best alternative to what he calls ethnocentrism in the Euro-American mode. That's his phrase, where, quote, difference in belief and behavior too often implies that one thing is worse or less desirable and must be changed. But we can always ask two questions at the very least. Is he right to believe that relativism is the most reliable source of respect for other ways of life? And is it possible that instead of generating respect, is it sometimes, like the moral isolationists worry, does it sometimes turn into a kind of museum curio conception of the other, like you just, just collect these other cultures in a little kind of conceptual museum and marvel at how different they are from all of us. And I'm putting up here three all Columbia connected voices that seem to believe that Herskovitz was right. So Franz Boas, uh, the, um, the Mind of Primitive Man, Ruth Benedict, his student Patterns of Cultures, and another student of his, Margaret Mead, Coming of Age in Samoa. This is a very actually distinguished Columbia um, lineage here uh, that I'm showing you. So let's ask then a really important question because this is the one, I'll even just go ahead and put the asterisk up here. There have been philosophers who claimed you could defend meta-ethical meta relativism and that you could make a good case by, for normative relativism by, by alluding, by not alluding rather to descriptive cultural relativism. But I think Herskovitz is right for saying these three really in the end all go together. Um, and the question is whether the trio that we get as this sort of package, do, do they, in resting on the descriptive claim, do they rest on a defensible understanding of human cultures? And I wanna ask three questions and which I'll take in turn to try to probe this. So the first question is, are cultures internally integrated or internally um, uh, complex wholes? The assumption of a, of a Herskovitz is that they're internally integrated. I'm gonna ask some questions that will challenge that. Do cultures um, have morally impenetrable or morally permeable boundaries? The relativist tends to assume impenetrability. I'm gonna start by raising a few questions that challenge that. And then the third question, are unfamiliar cultures full of ultimately unfathomable or potentially perspicuous others? I remember the day when I first decided I liked that phrase, potentially perspicuous other. 
it was a long time ago now. And I told my husband, I said, I think I have the clue to all mysteries about relativism. Maybe I don't, but anyway, I let myself think that I did. So I'm, I'll try and convince you maybe later that I, I did. So question one, are cultures internally integrated or internally complex holes? A lot of relativists and a lot of other people think they're integrated, sometimes tightly, but consider Carl Heider, who, was a, who is an anthropologist, who's kind of challenging some of the assumptions on which the uh, relativist views have depended. And in fact, if you think about the perspective from which people undertake any anthropological inquiry. So they come to a culture, members of a particular gender or having a particular gender orientation or age, race, ethnicity, even linguistic skills, that creates a particular point of view, both through which they assess the culture, but also through which the culture interacts with them. And it has turned out that in the history of very uh, late 20th century anthropology, you could get two accounts from one male anthropologist and one fem from female, the same culture a few years apart, and they would be dramatically different. Your account may depend on which voices you take to be authoritative in the culture. And there is this question, who has authority to speak for another culture? Margaret Mead had a famous dispute with a much later critic named Derek Freeman, who challenged her claims in coming of age in Samoa. But it, it turned out that not only was he interviewing people like 30 years later, or at least 25 years later, he was interviewing a lot of adult um, influential males in the culture where she had interviewed a lot of young adolescent girls and also adolescent boys, but a lot of girls. And they got very different pictures of what the Samoan life that she was writing about uh, look like. And then your account may depend on what you expect to see. What are you prone to emphasize or discount? You, what understandings about what makes a culture intelligible are you bringing to the project of our participant observation with you? And I add one of my favorites, but not sufficiently well read or, or well understood anthropologist of the 20th century is a man named Victor Turner who actually said, and I'll have another quote from him near the end, the culture of any society at any moment is more like the debris or the fallout of past ideological systems than it is a coherent whole. So now let's go to the next question. Do cultures have morally impenetrable or morally permeous and permeable boundaries? Porous means it has holes. Permeable means the holes, quote unquote, are close enough together for things to actually make their way through. That's why I use both words. So in the kind of uh, bi uh, physical um, imagery of something being permeable, it has to have a space to get through, but the spaces need to be closed together. Consider Herskovitz's discussion, which you read about if you've had a chance to read the, the chapter of the book, of, the, of what was then a polygamous family structure in the West African Dahomean societies he studied. And he says really quite interesting things about them, look very provocative. But one of the things he's adamant about is that their family structure could be defended. And why? Because he actually says, you know, they're just trying to do what we're trying to do, which is ensure the care and nurturing of their children. They don't do it the same way, but it's the same value at stake. But if it's the same value at stake, isn't that suggesting that a basic moral value actually is familiar 
and important across cultures. And doesn't it in fact call the um, relativist assumptions about impenetrability into question? And then my third question, are unfamiliar cultures full of ultimately unfathomable or potentially perspicuous others? This is one of my favorite uh, parts kind of of the debate that philosophers entered into. A couple of philosophers in the mid 20th century decided they needed to go out and do their own participant observation. They weren't actually trained as anthropologists, but they did it anyway. The great R.B. Brandt, who was a very interesting uh, moral philosopher, um, decided he would go study Hopi culture, at least what he thought was Hopi culture. And he comes up with this theory that Hopi parents didn't do enough to stop their children from quote unquote, quote unquote, torturing little birds and, you know, maybe uh, treating their, the wings of the birds as though the damage to the wings wouldn't harm them. He claimed that that was proof that the Hopi culture had attitudes towards animals that couldn't be found outside the cultural sphere. But it turns out that his discussion is unconvincing on many levels. And I'll give just two examples. First of all, in the discussion, he makes some unsubstantiated claims. I actually quote them in the book that primitive groups, quote unquote, lack the vivid imagination that allows them to understand animal suffering. But then he points out that, well, you know that Hopi culture and non-Hopi culture in America is different because you can just pick up the New York Times any Sunday and you'll see a letter from some activist challenging the inhumane character of slaughterhouses. And he says, if you read these letters, you just know that non-Hopi culture is utterly different. But of course, do we really want to assume that people who write letters to the New York Times are somehow exemplars? of all the attitudes about animal suffering we might find outside of Hopi culture. We know full well that there are a lot of people who never challenge the cruelty and brutality of certain kinds of uh, slaughterhouses and even more treatment of animals. And the idea, I mean, if you go over and actually read Brandt's book, it's really well-meaning, but it's so full of these kinds of unconvincing assumptions that treat the other as unfathomable when in fact, it turns out they're a lot more perspicuous. You know, in my, the book, I mentioned the example, I wanna make sure I don't talk too long. In the book, I mentioned the example, there's still people who give their kids, either for Easter, they give them baby chicks that are gonna grow into giant chickens and they're not gonna want them and then you gotta do something, quote unquote, with them. Or they give their children animals on Christmas when the child may be too young to care for them with no question of what's gonna happen no thought that there might be potential for cruelty or a lack of attention. Are they, are those parents really so different from the Hopi parents in the long run if cruelty or lack of concern for suffering is the outcome in both cases? To my mind, it may be on different subjects or they, with regard to different activities around animals, but I'm not convinced that one group is somehow less concerned about animal suffering than the other. So now I'm kind of, I did do this right. I'm kind of winding down. And I wanted to make sure that we had time to talk. I acknowledge that the cultural relativist assumption that a lot of what makes a culture survive is that there are traditions around, you know, traditions of belief and action, both moral and non-moral that they have to preserve. And of course, cultures have to preserve many things. Their people Right? That might be, let's not assume it's a COVID shot. Let's assume it's a shot against polio. 
They've got to preserve their natural environment, their languages, their ways of knowing, their modes of knowing, at, whether they're institutional, as at Columbia, or in indigenous cultures, their understanding of how to cultivate the earth, their religious convictions, right? They have to preserve many things. But how do cultures themselves survive? This is what the descriptive cultural relativism that I say underlies the most compelling cases for meta-ethical and normative relativism. This is what they don't talk about. If enculturation were really the all-engrossing, all-pervasive, inescapable force that Herskovitz described, cultures would quickly perish. Cultures survive, on my view, and, not, and that of many others, only when they strike a sustainable balance between traditions and one side and openness to the future and the changing conditions they'll encounter in the future. And again, I come back to my favorite anthropologist, Victor Turner, quote, human societies tend to find their openness to the future in the variety of their metaphors for what counts as the good life and in the contest of their paradigms. There's actually a little bit of Alistair McIntyre in here, but we can talk about that later. So now I have just a few more things I want to say. I want to ask two questions. Some of you are going to say, oh, Moody Adams, that's all well and good. But what if we are living together and we have serious disagreements about matters concerning public policy? There, it's not clear we can simply agree to disagree. What do we do when the policy has to embody one position rather than another. I say two things. Sometimes, temporarily, the thing to do is to try to split the difference. Strike a temporary compromise and see how the data of moral experience might change and perhaps along with them. But it's temporary. In other cases, we might try something longer term. Could we try to engage in a collective project of collective self-scrutiny hoping that the project of arguing back and forth might lead us both parties to change the way we see the problems, shared reinterpretations of the issues, and maybe even changing the things we think of as the most important values at stake. And I can talk later, Martin Benjamin was a really fascinating moral philosopher who wrote a book called Splitting the Difference. I think he's right. So one last set of observations that come from the great, actually philosopher of mathematics and um, what we need is to change the language, problem and solution. He says, talk about adjudicating ethical disputes and understand you may have to do it more than once. And he says, an adjudicated resolution, so this is the second large bullet, it may need to be done over and over because when you propose a solution, I'll say even on something like a policy about abortion, it changes the data of moral experience in ways we can't predict. And it may change our understanding of ourselves in relation to the data. And so that I think is critical. So I wanna end with two observations, uh, two final slides. So John Rawls very helpfully argued that in fact, this is what moral philosophy and in a broader sense, moral inquiry are really about. The study of principles of, that govern action shaped by self-examination. And Rawls says this brilliant thing, I think in the theory of justice, Moral philosophy is Socratic, and we may want to change our present considered judgments once their regulative principles are brought to light. He does say may, not must, but we may want to. And my argument is that moral philosophy 
is a species of moral inquiry, which in the broadest sense is actually Socratic, even in disagreements across cultures. And then finally, reasons run out even in science. In a marvelous passage from Uncertainty, Wittgenstein says, imagine that you encounter somebody who grew up believing the earth is only 50 years old. And you might try to get him to change his views. You might say, here are the facts, here are the facts. Here the earth is this and here are these things. But at some point to convince that person to think differently, you may have to just try to give them a picture. That's why a little bit obvious here, a picture of, the, of your understanding of the world. And this would happen through a kind of persuasion. And actually, I make the, the argument that both in science and outside of it, there are many areas of human concern in which sometimes reason giving as a practice will not be effective. Even the best kind of reason giving, unless you can find a way to get your rational disputant to accept some associated reimagining of the world. Um, I think that's critical. I th and it, to me, that's a very important point to give new life to an old cliche. Um, there are contexts in which a picture is worth more than a thousand discursive reasons, perhaps especially in regard to serious ethical questions. I don't say this will solve every dispute we have about ethical disagreement across cultures, but I think it can get close.